Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello, everyone. I'm Therese Bottomley, editor of The Oregonian and Oregon Live. This is Beat Jack with The Oregonian. Today, I'm talking to two reporters who recently wrote in-depth articles that I think of as a micro and a macro look at fentanyl in Oregon. Julia Silverman wrote about a mother's struggle to help her teenage son who ended up dying of an overdose. Zane Sparling wrote about the Eastern Oregon city of Ontario and looked at how it is grappling with the problem of addiction. I'm gonna link to both articles in the episode notes. Julia, Zane, welcome back to Beat Check. Thank you so much, glad to be here. Therese, let's check some beats. All right, Julia, you told the story of one family where a mom felt stymied at every turn in trying to help her son who was struggling. Tell us a little bit about that story and what you discovered about Oregon law. Yeah, you know, I wrote about um, fentanyl uh, education prevention efforts um, quite a bit in my first year at the Oregonian. Um, And I had just, on a personal note as a parent, been very impacted by previous stories that I read in the newspaper about um, families that had direct impacts to their kids from fentanyl. I'm thinking specifically of a story by Noel Crombie about Jennifer and John Epstein, who have become advocates um, for fentanyl education, and a story about Maxine Bernstein, by Maxine Bernstein, um, about two kids from McDaniel High School who died within, I think it was just a couple weeks of each other, also both from um, fentanyl poisoning last year. So this is a story that came um, across my desk in the summer, which is often a quieter time of year for education reporters. Um, It was a kid in my neighborhood lives just 10 blocks away uh, from where I live. He um, goes to my neighborhood high school and um, his mom wanted to talk. And what she wanted to talk about after um, the death of her son from fentanyl poisoning was the question of medical autonomy for minors and her his ability to refuse treatment um, as an adolescent. And that seemed like an interesting pathway into the story and an area that hadn't really been told before. Yeah, we think of medical autonomy for teens, you know, as a positive thing uh, for them to choose to seek treatment. But the, the flip side of that was a, a different arena and uh, explored in depth in your article, which I will link to. And so those are all very intimate stories of families and um, thanks to them for being so willing to share their stories. But Zane, you told a much different story about how fentanyl and drug policy have affected Ontario, which is, you know, a smaller size city, about 10,000 people. Um, how did you get onto that story and what did you discover when you visited? Well, I got on the story when my editor, Margaret Haberman, came up to my desk and said, Zane, how do you feel about going to Ontario? And it turned out that I felt great about that. And I really wanted to go visit. It's a place I'd never been before. And I think most of us here in the Portland metro, unless we've driven east on Interstate 84 all the way to Idaho, you you may not have ever even heard of it. 
Um, that said, it's a fairly large city for Eastern Oregon, uh, comparable to Pendleton or something like that. And it really is that micro macrocosm of uh, Measure 110 drug decriminalization in Eastern Oregon, because you see all of the problems and some of the same solutions uh, to this issue of open use of drugs, very visible homelessness, um, all of the consternation that causes, and of course, really crucially, the, the housing component too. So all of those things are in play in Ontario just as much as they are in Old Town, Portland, Oregon. So in both cases, we've got perhaps unintended consequences of laws, the, the medical autonomy law enacted with good intention, Measure 110, uh, controversial, uh, meant to decriminalize, as you said, some drug use, reduce the barriers that a criminal record might create, and push people toward free treatment. So Zane, what did people in Ontario tell you about how the law actually played out there? Well, what I found out was that so Measure 110 is based on this twin promise of let's keep people out of jail and the war on drugs and let's boost and increase access to treatment. And the first half worked fine. Uh, police in Ontario are not writing very many citations. They don't see much point in handing out a ticket that most people are going to ignore if they find someone who is possessing drugs or, or maybe um, possessing them. On the other hand, uh, the state's own data shows that the number of people who are receiving substance use uh, disorder treatment in on Malheur County, which is where Ontario is located, has plummeted. Uh, it's gone from uh, over 200 to about 50 people in just a few uh, quarters of the year. And the other really huge issue is that the law, while it did fund um, some of the pre-existing services like the contracted mental health and addiction treatment provider that the county already had a relationship with that was already being reimbursed by Medicaid. Sure, that that uh, organization known as Lifeways did get some more money. They got some money to hand out Narcan and to exchange dirty needles for clean ones. I mean, not to downplay those things, but there were, some of those things were really already happening in Ontario. What wasn't happening is they didn't have a detox. They didn't have a place to take someone when they are in the midst of uh, the throes of addiction, when they're going to have actually they need actual medical supervision um, to get out, get those drugs out of their system. And Ontario didn't have that before, and Measure One Ten did not create it. Yeah, and Julia, your story is um, really an interesting look at you know teenage years being pushing the boundaries, testing the boundaries. You overlay that with the stressors of the pandemic, the isolation of the pandemic, some mental health challenges of the pandemic, and the stakes of of you know the stakes of that typical teenage experimentation in the age of fentanyl, you know, are just so much more limited. And when the mom you wrote about recognized that her son was struggling, you know, she she really found she was limited by the law. And so tell, tell us more about the barriers that she faced. Right. So when your kid turns 15 in Oregon, or actually, I think it's, it's 14 for some things and then 15 for almost everything, um, their medical decisions are in their own hands. And I recall this really well with my own children, um, you know, realizing that suddenly I was no longer able to schedule like their annual visit to the pediatrician. And I, I remember being like, this is ridiculous. Like, 
my son doesn't brush his teeth without a reminder. The likelihood that he's going to be like, well, time to call the pediatrician is extremely slim. And, you know, he's he's a perfectly nice, functional person. (laughs) He's just a 15-year-old knucklehead. Sorry, Ben. Um, but you are. So um, the mom in this case um, was f- facing a situation where she could she could see she was really well aware of what was happening to her child, um, in part because she snooped on his social media. And I don't know if she'd love that I'm using the word snoop, but but in many ways, that's kind of what many of us find ourselves doing. Right. And that was her first tip and her first realization that like his drug use had gone beyond what many of us might think of as, um, you know, sort of the, you know, experimentation, a beer at a party or, you know, I mean, let's be realistic in Portland, um, pot is everywhere. Um, But, but uh, his had, his had gone beyond that. Um, And she tried, she described to me the stressors of trying constantly to find help for him. And whether that was through the school guidance counselors or through social workers, she called DHS um, and asked for guidance. And the offer came back, well, we can... um, we can buy a video camera for you and install it above uh, your front door. So if he comes home, because by this point he was running away, you know, you'll be able to see him. Um, She was tracking his location on his phone via Snapchat. Um, And, you know, she was, she was every time um, he, this is a kid who overdosed three times before the, the fourth and final, final um, one that killed him. And, um, each time if, if, if they were what she would speak to medical personnel and say like, you, you've, you've, there's gotta be more that I can do here. And each time the answer came back, it is ultimately up to him. Yeah. That is really, really hard. You know, I think you, you speak as a parent, I'm a parent. I think that the way you started the article with, you know, details of his childhood, um, any parent can relate I mean, it's a natural defense to assume something so terrible would never happen in our family. So, you know, those details, the pictures of him with his stuffy, you know, really brought home the problem. And, you know, kind of what what did you think about as a writer in terms of how to bring most people into this really difficult topic? I am so sorry that I never got to meet this kid. I think I would have liked him. I've seen so many videos of him because this is the age of, you know, like there are so many little kids who just grew up being filmed because of the computer that we all carry around in our pocket. Um, And, you know, you you just see him grow up on YouTube and it's um, wild and joyful. And um, he was clearly a creative and incredibly musical and um, talented person. And I wanted people to see him as more than that. Um, And I know that his mom did too. Like she, as any one of us would be, right, Therese? She she wanted people to know that her son was more than just a statistic. And so I, and, and I also thought it was more readable that way, right? As writers, we have to think about the narrative. I wanted people to read to the end of this story. And so as you're writing, you, I wanted to build in a little bit of, um, and then what? And then what happened? What were yeah. the choices he made? Um, what were the choices she made? What, what choices did they make together? And what choices were out of their hands? Yeah, and I know um, that we also provided some 
um, numbers and websites for help for people who find themselves in a similar situation. And Zane, skipping back to you, you know, Ontario is looking for solutions. Um, it is complicated because it's right there next to the border. It's complicated by lots of other things. But, you know, what did you hear that the city needs and what did you hear that might be working and might provide a lesson for other communities? Well, certainly what the city needs is one that immediate detox, right? Right now, if you are um, withdrawing from fentanyl or other street drugs, you're going to the emergency room or you're doing it on your own, essentially. Um, neither of those options are particularly good. Obviously, even though they do have about a 30-bed um, inpatient rehab for that kind of next step once you're trying to get clean and you've detoxed, but you still need to kind of get apart from your old old setting and really work on your sobriety, they have 30 beds. I mean, the reality is that there's always a wait list. The next nearest option is in Pendleton, which is a two and a half hour drive um, on Interstate 84. So capacity needs to expand. I did also see a lot of uh, dynamism around uh, affordable housing in Ontario. Now, that's not something that Measure 110 was directly designed to um, fund, but it was interesting to see not only do they have a, a housing authority there, they have a federal rent vouchers, housing vouchers. They've also got um, a, a Project Turnkey grant, which has allowed them to take an old uh, derelict apartment building and turn it into the city's first um, transitional shelter. And they also recently built uh, a, a, a new affordable housing complex. I think it's about 60 beds, 60 units. So that both of those are big strides. And I just want to say, uh, Julia, on your story, you know, it was really uh, heartbreaking to to hear what had happened to that family, and it it really just underscored to me that the problems that kids have. I mean, kids have always wanted to experiment with with drugs and alcohol. There's always been really dangerous repercussions. I mean, people die from alcohol poisoning every day, but um, it really shows that um, with fentanyl, the problems have just exacerbated and gotten even worse. So I really appreciate you putting a face to that crisis because it just, uh, it, it speaks to people so much more powerfully than, than numbers do. Oh, thank you. That's so lovely. And we're talking on, on Wednesday, this will be published on Monday and the legislature is in the middle of a very short session. So Julia, what about you? Do you see potential solutions to what the family you featured face? Do you see any solutions coming from, from Salem? Not certainly not in this session, and I'll I will remind you. Although this wasn't in my story, I did think about it a lot. Medical autonomy for minors was at the root of the walkout um, that sort of brought the 2023 legislative session to its knees. Right now, in that case, it was a question of abortion and um, should a parent need to be um, notified if a 15 year old is seeking an abortion. Um, this is different. Um, this was a question of should a child or a minor have the right to refuse life-saving treatment. And something I haven't mentioned, but something that um, Issa Wilde's mom argued passionately for is that her son's brain was still developing. And, and this is true. We know that the brain doesn't finish developing until people hit about 25 years old. And particularly for teenagers, the prefrontal cortex, which governs um, rational decision-making, is uh, definitely not all there yet. Um, again, I'll bring you back to my son, not brushing his teeth. So um, 
you know, there, there, there are, there are elements here where it sometimes felt to me in the reporting of the story that the law hadn't caught up with the science. However, um, given the fact that this is a short session, given how absolutely radioactive the medical autonomy for minors question is, and given the fact that many experts, and some of them are quoted in my story, were very clear that while this story is really heartbreaking, the best chance of success for recovery is when a person is ready to seek that step on their own, right? That just because you're struggling with substance use disorder doesn't mean you don't have agency. I don't think that we are likely to see this, um, to see progress this session. But I wouldn't say that we'll never see progress either. Yeah, very, very short window for for these really thorny issues. And they are, of course, looking at Measure 110 and reforms there uh, for the broader picture. Yeah, the um, uh, the issue that you're, uh, the family you wrote about um, came to confront, you know, did intersect, as you said, with that question that, that became so divisive in the previous sessions over medical decision-making, the uh, the concept of the prefrontal cortex not being completely developed is certainly woven in with a lot of questions about juvenile justice issues. And we've written about the most extreme case where a family might go to the courts to seek civil commitment for somebody. Uh, and that is very difficult in Oregon. So there are a lot of very complicating, very complex factors uh, that go into these public policy questions. Um, so I want to go back to you, Zane, on the connection between fentanyl and homelessness. Um, you had talked about like a lot of the things in place in Ontario and things that are missing. I was really struck by the photography of the homeless, the camping, the, the sanctioned camping site, which, you know, is a lot different from what you might see in Portland with t- tiny houses. You know, it was a gravel gravel pad, basically. I mean, talk about this connection between fentanyl and, and the homelessness crisis. Yeah, so there's a, a, a real um, nexus between drug use and, and homelessness. I saw that in the people I interviewed. Um, we did go out to several of the, the city's uh, largest camps. Um, one of them is a sanctioned camping site. As you, as you mentioned, Teresa, it's, on a, it's an old gravel pit really i mean it was it was bought by the city uh the city manager told me goal is to not make it as comfortable to make it no more comfortable than need be essentially uh, there's no power no running water uh, there's one portable toilet and there's a dumpster and that's what the city offers um, that's due to that uh ninth circuit ruling right that makes it a little bit harder for cities to enforce some of their camping rules so the ontario wanted to say well we have a place to send you and it's this um essentially this field, not even a, a, a flat field. Um, so the woman I spoke to there at that camp, uh, she was having issues staying clean. She said it was because she was burning, rubbing alcohol to stay warm. Uh, we talked to other people who were, who I didn't even, we ended up not using their photos or, or quoting them because they were just kind of incoherent and we couldn't really get uh, a, a meaningful conversation with them and, and just didn't, didn't want to, uh, you know, exploit them when they couldn't really consent to an interview. Um, but we spoke to yeah people who were clearly intoxicated and, and unwell. Um, and we also went out to the Flats, which is a unsanctioned homeless camp uh, that is 
one of the hot spots um, where uh, people live when they're kind of um, don't have anywhere else to go, but are also uh, maybe trying to avoid uh, interacting with the police or they've got a warrant and need to keep their head down. Uh, one interesting thing I, I note, though, is that I, I asked the police chief, you know, is this is the flats? Is this a hot spot? Is this a trouble spot for drug use or, or dealing? And the police chief responded, it's, it's all over, right? I mean, the reality is, is that people are using drugs in their homes. They're using them on the sidewalks, in the parks. It's not just happening in a few locations that can be swept and the pro- problem will magically go away. Yeah, and complicated by the border right there. I mean, Idaho has a much different criminal justice landscape for drug use. Exactly. Yeah. Well, excellent reporting by both of you, the Oregonian Oregon Live, telling the story of an individual family and also an entire community. So thank you, Julia and Sane. And with that, we'll call it a wrap. Thanks so much for listening to Be Check with the Oregonian. If you like this show, give us a five-star rating and review in Apple Podcasts. It really helps people find the show. Tell a friend, help spread the word. The best way to support our journalism and stories like these is with a subscription to Oregon Live, and you can do that at OregonLive.com slash pod support. Until next time.